All right, well, we are in Exodus this week, as we have been for a while. I have maybe two more sermons in the text of Exodus, and then I can't leave Exodus quickly, so I will probably give a handful of sermons next year that are kind of thematic, related to Exodus. But tonight, we're in 32 through 34 in the sin of the golden calf. And I want to start out by bringing up this question that I mention a lot, but I think we need to think about a lot, and that is, what is God like? I think when we ask that question, we all have our immediate answers that are good, probably correct theological answers. But then I think we have the instincts of our heart that tell a different story about what God is like. And I think that's in part what's going on in the account of the golden calf. So remember, going back to the beginning, Moses had encountered God. God had called him at the burning bush. And Moses asked about his name. Moses is trying to ask God, what are you, who are you? What are you like? And of course, God said a couple of things there. He said, I will be who I will be. You cannot control me. You cannot manipulate me. Yet, I've heard the cry of your people, my people, and I want to commit to them. I'm committing to them. And among other things, at the burning bush, God paraphrases, or I'm paraphrasing. He says, watch who I am. My name is Yahweh. You can call me. You can address me. Watch who I am in the subsequent actions that take place after this. And just quickly, what does God do after this? Well, first, we've already said he hears the cry of his people. He hears the cry of suffering people, his covenant people. He fought with Pharaoh through the plagues to defend his people so that Pharaoh would let them go. He calls Israel his firstborn son. He protects them in the Passover and feeds them with the Passover lamb. And he brings them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand out of slavery from Egypt and defeats and utterly wipes out the forces that are trying to re-enslave his people. God feeds them in the wilderness. He takes care of them. He knows their needs. He knows their weakness and feeds them. He disciplines them. He begins to treat them like a a son whom he's training and maturing and trying to bring up in his ways. And at Mount Sinai, he invites them into covenant. He invites them, as the prophets say, into marriage as his people. And we've been looking at that account of the marriage ceremony for a while. In that marriage ceremony, he gives them the ten words, the declaration of independence for the people of God. Because those words are not just rules. They are an outline of the life of freedom that he is trying to lead his people into. He made plans for a house to, for them to build, for him to move in so he could be in their midst. This is what God is like. He has unfolded what he is like and what he has done in these events. But the, the course for tonight or the text for tonight is central because... I would suggest it is the greatest revelation of God's character in the Old Testament that we're going to see through these texts. So let's look at Exodus 32.1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ear, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and, they, and drink and rose up to play. Why did they do this? I mean, they've already had explicit mention on many occasions. It's one of the ten words, do not make a graven image. They've already done this. Why do they do it? I think that's the most important question. Because idolatry is not that far from us. Paul warns of idolatry throughout the New Testament. Why did they make the calf? First, I think they thought Moses was dead. They thought he was gone. He went to that cloud. That's it for him. What do we do now? But I think it was also because they were bored. And that's astounding, right? Here they are in the wilderness. Here they are with this record of what God has done. But it says 40 days go by. Can you blame them? I mean, they're waiting. Nothing, no word. I think they're bored. They're tired of waiting on God. And to get to what I said in the beginning, I think they're wrong about what God is like. See, I think Moses was a screen between God and them. He said, Moses, you speak to God. We We can't handle it. Right? They had a wrong idea about God, and because of this, they didn't want to relate to him. See, remember, we have to keep in mind that they came from Egypt, where they saw a lot of religion, a lot of exciting religion, a lot of grand religion. They were used to that, and they were not used to this waiting. They, did, they wanted a religion that didn't make them wait, that didn't make demands on them, something that was exciting, and 40 days went by in the wilderness, so they say, Aaron, up. We, we, got, we, we need to do something here. They wanted a God they could keep in their pocket. That's what an idol is. A God that you can control, that you can use. They either wanted to avoid God or control God, but not encounter him as he is. And this is what's at stake in the golden calf. Ultimately, they didn't want to be in his school of freedom. And this is key. God brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them from external freedom. But God knew that he had to deliver them from internal freedom, from the the movements and desires of the heart that were more enslaving than the external freedom. And that's that's what his training of his people was. It was discipleship. It was discipleship in his school of freedom. And of course, in this account, Moses is absolutely key. He is the intercessor, the intercessor on their behalf, and everything turns on what he does. And I would suggest that Moses is bolder in this account than Abraham was. Remember in Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, when God said, I'm going to wipe out Sodom, and Abraham says, who am I that I should address God? But what if there are 40 people that are righteous there? Will you wipe it out? And Abraham has his intercession to try to intervene on behalf I want to suggest that Abraham is a lot, excuse me, Moses is a lot more bold here. He says a number of things. Verse 9 of chapter 32, and the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. This is quite an offer, right? Moses is given this opportunity Hey, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out, but Moses, I'm going to start over with you, and I'm going to make a great name out of you. Moses is given an offer uh, that's astounding, but Moses is not going to have it. He stays God's hand. He says, listen, God, 
why are you going to do this? To what end? This is the people that Egypt is going to say, well, you just brought them out in the wilderness to wipe them out. So Moses stays God's hand. He intervenes. Then he goes to the people. And of course, it's at this moment that I can only think of Charlton Heston when, you know, in the, the, the Ten Commandments, when he comes down and he smashes the Ten Commandments. He visually demonstrates what Israel has already done. They have smashed the covenant. They have broken the covenant. They have done the worst idolatry that they could commit. Moses comes into the camp and he calls those who are faithful to God to him and he judges the ringleaders of this rebellion. And then a little bit later, it says that he sets up the tent of meeting. And I think it's important to note that the tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. It's a tent that Moses would go and pray in outside the camp. That's key. God wanted to move in the midst of the camp. But Moses had to go meet with God outside the camp because of this. And so he goes and he meets with God outside the camp. This is, again, it's a tragedy. In verse 31 of chapter 32, he says this to God's offer. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin... If you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is remarkable. God has said, move aside. I'm going to judge this people and make a great nation out of you. And Moses says, no. And if you won't forgive them, don't forgive me. I want to identify with this people. I don't want, I don't want to be great without them. So Moses intercedes on their behalf. And God says, okay. I'm going to forgive them. But he says, I'm not going to go in your midst. I'm going to send you on. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you. But I am not going to go in your midst. And of course, Moses can't accept that. In verse 14 of chapter 33, he says, and he said, my presence, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is not an idolater. He does not want God's blessings without God's own self. He does not want the good things that God will give if God is not with them. Because he knows that is what makes the people of God distinct, is his presence with them. He's not an idolater. He gets the covenant. He gets the invitation that God has made to Israel. And there's more. Moses pleads further with God. This is in chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. There's a lot going on in this text. And there's a lot of sort of tension of language. Language is stretching here. Remember, 
when it speaks of the tent of meeting, it says that Moses spoke with God as a friend speaks face to face. But here he says, no man will see my face and live. In fact, the word face occurs in all of these chapters something like 21 times. It's really touching on this theme of being intimate with God, of knowing him and of knowing his character. But the tensions are there because he says, listen, if you saw me in all my glory, it would kill you. You can't see me and live. But God says, I will show you something of my glory. I will show you more. I will reveal myself. I will declare my character and my name to you. He cannot see God, but he will hear God's name. He will hear the essence of what God is like. And again, he says, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. I can't be manipulated, but he hears Moses' prayer and he says, your desire to know me, I will bless and I will draw you into closer fellowship with myself. But he makes it clear that this is not because Moses can take credit for this, but it's because of God's kindness and his mercy. And so we come to the revelation itself. And again, I'm going to read this text, but I want to suggest that this is, if you want to go to the one place in the Old Testament that gives you the most, the greatest detail of a description of God's character. It is these passages, starting in chapter 34 and in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So we get this declaration, this epiphany. God passes by Moses and declares his name. God's name, it says the Lord, and remember, this is Yahweh. It's mentioned five times, all in this concentrated space. It's, it's highly concentrated with God's name. And in the beginning, when he declares his name, he says, the Lord, the Lord, twice. There's nowhere else in Scripture where this happens. All right? it's, it's, it's rich with God's presence. Going back to the burning bush, first we learn a person's name, then we learn what they're like. You know, you meet somebody, you learn their name, and then as you spend time with them, and as maybe you share experiences with them, you come to know what they are like. And this is what is happening in this moment for Moses. It comes in two parts. In the first part, God declares the qualities of his character. What is God like? God says, let me tell you what I am like. Merciful. Gracious. Slow to anger. I love this idiom in Hebrew. It's long of nose. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love, which is the the Hebrew word hesed. Maybe one of the most important words in the Old Testament. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A few things I would mention about these five terms. They're all relational terms. They're not abstract theological terms. They're all terms about how God relates to people. He is gracious to people. He is merciful to people. He is slow to anger with people. They are, secondly, overwhelmingly positive, overwhelmingly good. 
All right, our first instinct because of sin is that God is good, but not to me. That God is good, but I'm the exception. Or that God's out to get me. We should think, first of all, that he is overwhelmingly, surprisingly, shockingly good. That that is the core of who he is. This is the sort of person he is. And again, I would suggest that that phrase, steadfast love, is one of the hardest words in the Bible to translate, but probably the most important word in describing his character. And the best way to understand it is the very account we're reading. It's translated loving kindness, which is beautiful. It's translated steadfast love. A good translation is covenant loyalty. And what does that mean? Well, God made a covenant with Israel. And they did the worst possible thing they could do right when the wedding ceremony is going on. And God remains faithful to his covenant at great cost to himself. So what does it mean? What does hesed, what does loving kindness mean? Look at this story and you find out what it means. It's the best unpacking of of this word that you can find. In the second part of God's self-revelation, he leans in on the steadfast love, showing steadfast love, showing this covenant faithfulness to thousands of generations, but who will by no means clear the guilty, it said. Now, one thing I would point out, and this is maybe this troubling thing at the end, but one thing I would point out is thousands overwhelms four generations, right? The predominant thrust of what God is saying about himself is his goodness and his mercy, But here at the end, I think this is important because he retains the right to punish. He retains, he's guarding his freedom. And we see in the account where Moses goes through the camp and judges the ringleaders of this rebellion where we see that. But front and center, and this is the most important part, front and center is the goodness and the character of God that he declares about himself. And we should let the scripture speak authoritatively to our untrusting hearts. When we think, oh, God, he's, he's out to get me for what I've done. We should go here and say he is gracious. He is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So through this encounter, through Moses' intercession, the covenant is, is restored. Moses intercedes. God was going to send them on without him. And Moses intercedes and says, okay, no, I, I, will, I will allow you to build my tabernacle. I will forgive them. Moses asks to know God and God declares his name. He says, this is what I am like. This is who I am. The covenant restored the, is restored because the plans for the house to be built go forward. God is going to move in with his people. And then there's this last encounter, this last section of chapter 34 that I want to look at. 34.29 has to do with Moses' face. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had, spo- all that the Lord had spoken to him with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses is a glow. 
And there's an interesting thing if you know anything about art history. If you look in, in art history in the West, there's a lot of depictions of Moses where he will have horns. Anybody ever seen this? A lot of Renaissance depictions of Moses and statues of Moses. I think there's even a Leonardo da Vinci depiction of Moses and he has horns. It's because in Hebrew, the word for ray, like a ray of light and horn is exactly the same word. All right. And so I think some of those depictions were trying to recognize this or trying to wrestle with what's going on in the text. But Moses come down, comes down and he's aglow and they're terrified of him. As you might be if somebody came and they were radiant shining like the sun. I want to suggest a couple of things. Moses has gone into God's presence. He has gone back into the garden. He has gone back into the place that mankind was driven from. And because he beholds God, because he has heard of the character of God, he's like Adam was meant to be. He's like Eve was meant to be. Moses in this moment is like the human race is, is as God intended them to be one day radiant with his beauty, reflecting his character and his goodness. It's like Jesus at the transfiguration. All right, Moses is, this is a, a little vision ahead of time of the destiny of all humanity, but the tragedy is they're terrified of it. They don't want to go near it. They don't want to be involved with it. Why does he shine? Why, does he, why is he radiant? Because he has beheld the goodness of God and God's goodness, C.S. Lewis says, is like a good infection. When you behold it, when you turn to the Lord, when you behold his goodness by the Holy Spirit, something of that goodness comes upon you and changes you. We see in this whole interchange that Moses has participated in the ministry of Jesus ahead of time. He has said, God, forgive this people. He has said, God, uh, blot me out if you're going to blot them out. God, don't bless, the, don't bless us without giving us your very self. He has reflected the character of Christ in this. And I think that's why he glows. Because he participates in the character of God. The character of Christ in particular ahead of time. So let me say five things about all this. And then we'll come to the table. The first is about idolatry. Idolatry is still with us. When we get bored with God... When we get bored with discipleship, when we get bored with the slow, patient, trusting, unspectacular school of freedom that he has put us in, we're tempted to idolatry. We're tempted to put a screen between ourselves and God. We're tempted to find something that we can manage, something that we can handle, to look to somebody who's more exciting. They wanted a religion that would entertain them that didn't require much of them, but we are called to something so much more. We're called to the school of freedom. We're called to learn to wait on God. We're called to learn to patiently learn this process of the freedom that God wants to give us by the Holy Spirit. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from judgment, freedom from, uh, freedom from desires that control us. God still wants to deliver us from idolatry and idolatry is still a temptation. Second, Moses is an intercessor. Moses puts his neck on the line for this people. And I believe that Moses in faith sensed that God could be appealed to. He could be approached. Not manipulated. Not, not let me find a technique to get God to give me what I want. But his nature is such that he can be appealed to. Moses sensed that. And Moses did not want to be great 
without the people that God had given him to. He said, God, I want my lot to be with that people. And again, he participates ahead of time in the very prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And this is something we're called to to for one another. We're called to the same kind of participation, the same kind of intercession. Thirdly, what is God like? Well, this story tells us, right? This story tells us that his bride committed adultery on the wedding night and he said, I'm going to remain faithful to this covenant. That's what God is like. That should be the first thought in our minds when we think what God is like. And all through the scripture, when you see that word loving kindness or the various ways it's translated, you should think of it as shorthand for this story. Whenever you see that word, you should, your mind should play out the story of the Exodus and the story of the covenant being restored at Mount Sinai. And ultimately it says this, there was never a golden age for the people of God. There was never a time when they were like fantastic. It was always based on this pre-existing character of God who manifested himself to his people. Amen. That's good news because that is the news that transform people, transforms people. Finally, Jesus life is the fullest display, the fullest exhibit, the fullest unpacking of the character and the glory of God. When those Greeks came to the disciples and they said, we would like to see Jesus. And the disciples told Jesus, he says, now is the son of man glorified because he knew he was going to the cross. And we know that the cross, if we want to say, what is God like? Look at Mount Sinai. What is God like? Look at Mount Calvary where Jesus says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth, loving kindness and truth came through Christ. His plea of forgiveness from the cross is the most concise unpacking of what God is like that we can look to. And then finally, I want to close with this because I think this is the response for us. Moses was radiant because he saw God. He saw something of God's goodness. He heard something of God's goodness. And I want to suggest and challenge all of us to Paul says we are called to more. We are called to something greater. We are called to a greater revelation of God's character than Moses had. We are called to have more boldness than Moses had. I want to close tonight by reading some of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and a little bit 4. But keep in mind all of this that we've been talking about as I read this. Now, if the ministry of death, that's the old covenant that we're reading about, carved in letters of stone, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It's like the glory of the moon when the sun has risen. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Every time we gather in faith to Jesus and the revelation of God through him, the veil is removed. And we get to see something that Moses couldn't see. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The invitation in this text is, we can turn to the Lord. We can turn to the Lord through faith in Christ and behold the glory and the character of God. And as we behold it, not just glance at it, but as we behold it in our hearts, as we behold it in the scripture, as we behold it at this table, as we behold it in his word, the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory transforms us into that glory. Makes us more like the gracious, merciful, kind, long-suffering character of God. Now remember I said that in the text, nobody can see God's face and live. But notice what Paul says in chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What was Moses? Israel's servant for God's sake. And now we are called into the same ministry. Servants of the people of God, servants of the world for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May we behold his face and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up as we come to the Lord's table.